Welcome to Building Tomorrow. My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm the director of Cato's project on emerging technologies. The usual host, Paul Matsko, is out. So I've been tasked to step in with my able-bodied colleague, Peter Van Doren, sitting opposite me. And today we are joined by Hal Varian, the chief economist at Google. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So... There's a lot to talk about. Uh, that uh, you're at Google, uh, and there's, there's. Uh, I know you have a lot of thoughts about future of work and other pieces uh, of of your portfolio over at Google. But I thought it'd be good to start earlier. Uh, before Google, what were you doing? I was a dean at Berkeley before uh, Google, and then before that, I was a professor at the University of Michigan. And teaching or learning what while you were doing that? I was teaching primarily economics with some focus on economics of technology, a little bit of finance mixed in. So it was a mixed portfolio. I know that Peter especially, I mean, I have interest in this too, of course, but uh, wanted to discuss uh, your your writings in the New York Times. So maybe tell the, the readers, uh, was this, uh, how often did you write for the, the Times? Uh, how did you get involved uh, with that column? So I was invited to write this column. It was called Economic Scene. Uh, there were four people who rotated through the uh, columns. They came out, I think, on Thursday. Uh, and uh, it was carte blanche, whatever I wanted to write about. And unlike a lot of columnists, I didn't want to write about opinions, really. I wanted to write about economics. What were the interesting things that were happening in economics, in research, in teaching, in government? I didn't completely avoid politics and opinion writing, of course, but I was trying to give people a picture. I viewed it more as education than persuasion, in my view. You'll be aware, of course, that uh, there's a lot of discussion today about antitrust uh, regulation of these uh, so-called big tech companies. And in preparation for this, uh, Peter and I were, were interested in your take on uh, the accusation that Google is a monopoly, because I think the the concern reveals potentially a very a misunderstanding about what exactly it is that Google does and how it makes money. Uh, because again, I'm I'm here with my my two philosophy degrees. I might not have the best insight here, but it seems that your your customers are advertisers who have numerous places at which to put their ads. So on the, on the user side, for it seems as people say, well, when I search for something on the internet, there's really only Google. There is DuckDuckGo and a few others. But because you're so market dominant, you should be considered a monopoly. Uh, is that a misunderstanding? Well, yes, I think so. And I, I think when you look at other media, you look, for example, at newspapers, when the DOJ and the FTC looked at mergers of newspapers, what they focused on is what that did to the advertising market, mm. not the content side. So really, I don't think there's a market for search at oh, all. So I, in our discussions, I said to Matt, I'm going to be – when I I'm flip at dinner parties and I make my hard-nosed econ kind of claims – I always argue, come on, guy, there is no market for search. Stop talking. Unless someone pays for something, there's no market for it. There's a market for advertising. So Google's competing with the New York Times and the network, television networks, and Sports Illustrated. Yes, I still am a subscriber. Um, one of three, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so th there is no market for search. So I wondered if you would push back and say that was being a little too econ 
kind of wise guy or whether, but you uttered it before I even said it. Yeah, exactly so. And in fact, today, I would say search itself is evolving as a concept. So there's much more of a question answering. You know, sometimes you answer the question by going on and finding a website that has the answer. Sometimes you answer the question, like what's the temperature outside or when does the next bus for for Cincinnati leave? This, these kinds of things will be answered directly by Google or other formerly known search engines. What about the other concern people have when it comes to monopoly, which is that we we think of Google, we think of the the iconic search bar, but of course, I suppose technically now it's it's Alphabet of which Google is a, a part, and the the company's doing a lot more than just providing search, and it's uh, it's building gadgets for homes, they're developing you know, these. There was an idea a while ago for balloons to d- help deliver internet to third world countries. There's uh, there's maps. There's there's tons going. You own websites. Uh, is and, and the worry that people have is well, Google just waits for some website or company to get prominent enough, and then we gobble it up with our billions. And that's uh, another avenue of monopoly concern. Uh, what's the response of someone who works there to uh, a claim like that? So let me start with the first question you ask, and then I'll get to that one. I can one. go but through I, a few. Yeah. I, prom- <laughs> I promise I will, uh, will, will address that one as well. Uh, Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, always used to say the trouble with Google is you have to ask it a question. It should just give you an answer mm. without having to ask a question. And that's actually the model of the Google Assistant where we're trying to say, well, if you go this way, you'll get home five minutes earlier. Or if you uh, do this... You'll find that. So you'll find the, these uh, information conveyed to you that's useful, we hope, without really having to, to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's kind of a nice uh, development we think of as the assistant model. Now, I will say there are people that don't like that. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's what we call the assailant model, the assistant versus the assailant. What we're trying to do is provide good, useful, helpful services for people when they need them when they want them, Um, but there are people who have concerns about that. Well, that's why these are all voluntary. I mean, you can decide whether or not you want to uh, know how long it's going to take you to get home under current traffic conditions or or what are restaurant reviews look like in your neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, So this is evolving. It's not always going to be a search engine that's one stage in the in the uh, evolution and as you said we are engaged in lots of other uh, projects the autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. and, and th- that's an interesting point too point that people don't sufficiently appreciate we would have we meaning the world would have fully autonomous vehicles now if it weren't for those darn humans because Think about driving through Washington. I rode in the driverless car through Washington, and uh, it's not the car that's the problem. It's knowing what those other people are going to do. And if every vehicle was an autonomous vehicle, we'd have a much smoother, more functioning system. And by the way, the pedestrians are just as bad (laughs) as the drivers, (laughs) if not worse. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the autonomous vehicle is really trying to learn about people. And learn about how you can navigate in this world or in this universe where there are all these people doing strange, random things. Um, if you look at California, for example, uh, there's this uh, Interstate 5, which goes down the Central Valley. 
And uh, if you added another lane, said autonomous vehicles only, you'd have a dramatic increase in efficiency, in my view, because they could just communicate among themselves, get from A to B in the fastest, most efficient method, and wouldn't have to worry about the humans who are falling asleep or getting drunk or, you know. So not an HOT lane, high occupancy tolling, but an AV Occupancy, autonomous, AVL. Yeah, or maybe no occupant. (laughs) (laughs) An AVL. Yeah. So anyway, I I think that's an important uh, important point to to remember. And then what was your last question? Oh, it was about monopoly. Yeah, acquisition. And acquisitions. Well, one thing is it's very important to understand that having a large market share, having a strong position in the market, that's not illegal. What's illegal is to use tactics or to use uh, ways that you prevent competition or prevent entry that are, well, let's say, unfair. That's not quite a uh, word in antitrust, but that are that are not anti-competitive. Better term. Um, so it, it, all these investigations that people are talking about are, are investigations about how they impact competition. Okay, and that includes entry as one. Now, if you look at uh, Silicon Valley in general, there's a phenomenon known as aqua hires. Aqua hires, or aqua hires may be better pronunciation. And that's where you're doing an acquisition, but the motive for the acquisition is to acquire workers. And in many cases, workers have specific knowledge or expertise that can help with some new product, new design, new service that we're offering. So an example, when we started working on voice recognition, we had zero. We had zero data. We had zero uh, people who were familiar with voice recognition. So we went out and hired some of the best people in the world. They generated the data for voice recognition using a service known as Google 411. I don't know if you, any of you remember that, but that was, that was how we collected voice samples, and then we build up the voice recognition system that you're aware of today. So in process of doing that, we acquired several companies. They weren't because they were potential comp- uh, competitors. They were complementers. They were people who could help us deliver on these products that relied on uh, voice as a means of communication. And I think when you go look at the Google uh, acquisitions, they primarily fall into into that camp. If you look at acquisitions just on companies provided search, there were only three of them, three such acquisitions, and the last one was something like 12 years ago. So the core business, I think it's quite accurate to say we grew that ourselves, but as we expanded into new businesses, we went out to get expertise and knowledge that could be helpful in doing that. I was at Google earlier this year for a demonstration on some of the, uh, a lot of things, but one of the most impressive was this voice recognition system that they've built. Uh, And it was trained on people who have um, suffered from strokes or or who have stutters because, of course, most voice recognition systems struggle to understand them. And in this demonstration, uh, there was someone who had one of these, I I believe, had suffered a stroke. And he was speaking, and I, I doubt anyone in the amphitheater could have understood exactly what he was saying, but Google's voice recognition got it like that. It was it was really incredible. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. It must be fun to work in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's great fun. Another friend of mine was a former 
professor was asked, well, why are you at Google? Why aren't you at a university? He said, wouldn't you want to be at Florence during the Renaissance? <laughs> and it's an app comparison. Just to go back to autonomous vehicles, um, my journal Regulation ran an article last issue by Kyle Logue, who teaches law and economics at Michigan, your former place of employment. And he argued quite strenuously that to ease, well, what, what should we do with automobile insurance uh, in this coming uh, transition? And he argued, people are the problem, so we ought to make auto manufacturers strictly liable for all accidents. And I go, what? And then I, keep, I kept reading and kept reading and he said, well, we know that drivers are the problem, not the cars. And so this kind of Nader-oriented recall and, and stuff and car defects. He said, cars don't have defects. He said, people do. And I said, oh, all right. Then he goes, if auto manufacturers were strictly liable for accidents, then auto manufacturers would um, hasten the, the introduction of autonomous vehicles because that would lower their liability because people are the problem. And I said, wow. So we published this article, and uh, it sounds like you have thought about this as well. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. You know, there are several universities have torture tests for autonomous vehicles. Have you seen these? No. There's no. one at the University of Michigan where they build a little town, and in this town, balls roll into the streets, ladies cross with shopping carts, all sorts of disasters around every corner, and the goal is for your autonomous vehicle to navigate safely through the town. So it's uh, kind of like uh, underwriter's lab sort of thing to say they passed this test. But autonomous vehicles are only one part of this big ecosystem of increased um, automation. And, and given that uh, you're at Google and you're, you're, uh, you have insight into a lot of exciting tech that's coming down the road, uh, what do you think about the concerns that people have, which is, well, all this technology is going to take all the jobs? And what are we going to do about that? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, those category of concerns? Well, let me say two things on that. One is um, this debate, particularly in California, about uh, guaranteed basic income, that kind of thing. Well, some people like it. Some people hate it. But everybody loves a three-day weekend. <laughs> so if we really became so productive that we could produce in four days what we now takes five to produce, well, then you can adjust the weekend. People can take that bonus in extra consumption, and they can take it in extra leisure. In fact, you know who has, this is a little trivia question, which country has the shortest work week in the developed world? And nobody ever guesses. Well, now that you've said no one ever guesses, I feel like I, I should just pick some obscure Western developed country. Liechtenstein? Liechtenstein. <laughs> what? No, it is it Latvia San, or San Marino? San Marino. So, no, it turns out it's the Netherlands. 29-hour mm. average work week. Uh, and the reason is they have a lot of part-time work. They had a recession one year. And they followed the German model of doing work sharing. Instead of laying off 10% of your workers, you had everybody work 10% less. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable idea. They, they uh, did this for a couple of years. The recession ended. They say, okay, let's go back to normal. People said, no, we don't want normal. We like the three-day weekends. We like having this uh, 29 work week. And they've got a pretty good standard of living. They've got pretty good productivity. So that's a variable. We could decide collectively 
how we want to work. And as you know, we've seen all of this gig economy stuff. It's exaggerated to some degree, but we know there's a big demand out there for flexible work. One wonders uh, what what kind of what job is next. We've already gone through the. Uh, it's it's people are now very very familiar with uh, seeing robots in car factories or having uh, all, all the stuff that that Google makes when it comes to you know mapping and navigation. That all seems to have got rid of uh, some degree of expertise. What's uh, what's the next big sector? Do you think that's going to be hit by uh, what people call automation? So remember when we look at this robots and factory numbers, 50% of all robots are in auto factories. 30% are in assembly of consumer electronics. Once you build an assembly line where the person at a particular point is doing the same thing over and over again in a highly controlled environment, that's a very natural place to put a robot. I mean, we've been optimizing the flow of work down the assembly line for 100 years. And uh, that's a very natural direction to, to go. Now, if you look at the 10 largest occupations in America, number two is cashier. And we're already seeing cashiers disappearing in the sense that we're seeing self-checkout. We're seeing wave your phone at the system. That's not just digitization. That's having a payment system that makes sense, that's easier to use than this uh, antique uh, stuff called physical money. Uh, but it is something that we're going to see more and more of. And the reason we're going to see more and more of it is in the next 20 years, we're going to see quite tight labor markets. And this is something people don't fully appreciate. There were two big effects in the 20th century, baby boomers coming online in the 60s and 70s and women entering the labor force in large numbers. So those aren't going to repeat themselves. In fact, we're seeing the uh, labor force decrease. Without immigration, the labor force in the U.S. would be literally decreasing as the baby boomers retire. And basically, in the women's participation in the labor market, that's pretty much saturated at around 85%. Uh, so that means you've got this kind of double whammy. You've got the uh, technology evolving to be able to do more complex things and making change and being a cashier, that's not all that complex. Uh, so they're evolving to do that. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing a shrinkage of the labor force, or at least in the U.S., the labor force is growing at half the rate of the population growth. And if you look at other countries, it's far worse. So look at China with the one-child policy. That's a demographic disaster. So the Chinese really have to invest in automation, robotics, and uh, artificial intelligence just to keep their output per person up. They've got to increase productivity in order to maintain their standard of living. And it's not just China. It's Japan, which is far down H this road. H Korea, yeah. uh, down this road. You look at Germany, Italy, all, all around the world. They're below replacement rate on the birth a absolutely. side. Absolutely. And by the way, right now so in the U.S., we've got the lowest birth rate ever recorded in the U.S. Which, given that it's well... It, we're in a boom. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's lots of economists or economic demographers are kind of scratching their heads about yeah. about that because the birth rate always goes down during a recession for obvious but it reasons. It has not come back. It has not come back. And exactly it, right. The literature's kind of scratching its head. Well, about that. Given that we're sitting in a public policy think tank, given these concerns, what what what's a uh, government policies would you argue for or advocate in um, in light of these? 
concerning trend? Well, it, it's one of the. There's nothing wrong with having a declining population as long as you have increasing productivity, mm-hmm. a declining workforce, I should say, as long as you have the productivity growth that can maintain the standard of living. But when you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics forecast, I think they just came out in the last few days. Uh, eight out of the top ten job categories were in healthcare. Okay, which everybody recognizes as a problem. Now, things kind of get back to normal around 2050. But the, but the next, the next uh, 30 or 40 years, you're going to see this, uh, you know, the repercussions from that baby boom nearly 100 years ago now. It's amazing. It's always been easy. In the 20th century, it was always easy to find workers because you had this big supply chain. Now, when we look forward, the number of workers is, is decreasing in the U.S., and it's going to be a tight labor market, and that will actually impact a lot of the worrisome trends that people are talking about now. I mean, there's a lot of issues about workers uh, don't have sufficient power or uh, wages are too low. Well, wages are going to be going up. I think there's no question that wages are going to be going up. This kind of gets back to the beginning of our conversation, though, which is that uh, a lot of voters with these concerns who are observing uh, some of these trends will uh, perhaps put the blame in an inappropriate place. And and uh, I, I don't know what, what the answer to that is because I'm a policy analyst and not a political uh, consultant. But I do uh, worry not just uh, about – I'm very optimistic on the, the actual uh, problems that technology will be able to solve. But yeah. this, this kind of painful – growing period between uh, does concern me politically yeah. uh, and it, uh, because it ties into concerns about uh, immigration uh, and, and foreign policy and trade, uh, and that can be potentially disastrous. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, work now at trying to look at um, jobs that will be most impacted. There's a nice uh, finding by Jim Besson who looked mm-hmm. at the 1950 census I think there were 150 occupational categories. Only one of them disappeared because of technological substitution, and that turned out to be elevator operator, the elevator Uh operator. But it's important to remember the elevator operator didn't just operate elevators. They greeted people. They were security monitors. They answered questions people have, delivered packages to people's doors. Those tasks are still being done. It's just that they fall under a different job title than mm. they used to back in 19, uh, 1950s. So you walk into a building, there's a security person, there's a receptionist perhaps, there's somebody who inspects the elevators, on and on and on. The tasks are still being done, it's just they're being done with a different um, job. And I don't want to get too uh, optimistic here. After all, I am an economist, so... Uh, to say that we've got aggregate uh, supply of labor tightening, uh, it's, I think, clearly the case. But you also want to make sure that people have the skills that are necessary to get jobs. And most jobs, even relatively low-paid jobs, are more, much more complex than intellectuals will admit because they require a whole mix of different tasks. There's a wonderful website constructed by the Department of Labor called OSTAR, yeah, ONET, sorry, ONET, which is for each job category, they have the list of tasks that are associated with that job category. And um, if you think about a job like being a gardener, 
we don't think that as a as a high paying job because they have to do such a wide variety of things. So you could replace one of those with a automation after ten million dollars and ten years of research. We are going to find it really hard to replace all of those tasks. And people say, well, but that's not a good job. I don't know. People do gardening as a hobby. People don't do assembly line as a hobby. <laughs> so you tell me which is a good job. <laughs> I just want to thank Hal for coming in. For those of you who aren't subscribing, please do. And until next week, be well. <laughs>